I want you to notice something, a piece of the gospel story you may have missed. Now, once you see it, you'll never miss it again, though, I promise. Let's talk about Jesus after the resurrection. Mary Magdalene, who loved Jesus dearly as he had rescued her from a previous life in which seven demons tormented her, saw him at the tomb early on the first resurrection Sunday. As she wept in the garden upon discovering that the tomb was vacant, she noticed a man whom she thought was the gardener. She asked him to tell her where the soldiers who had been on guard took Jesus, if he knew. That was in John 20, 13-15. Now you know how that story ends and where this goes. The gardener is Jesus. But it's only after he called her by name, Mary, that she recognized him. How, how did this happen? How did a trusted friend not recognize him just a few days later? Well, I think it's because his appearance after the resurrection was different, infinitely better than his appearance even before he was bruised. Of course, that, that appearance was better than what he had looked like before he was clothed in all of those wounds. Now, this wasn't an isolated instance. Uh, two disciples walked the road to Emmaus when Jesus began hiking stride for stride with them in Luke 24, 13 and following. It was a few days after the resurrection. They didn't recognize him either, even though he taught them from the scripture about himself the entire seven-mile journey. We thought he was the one that would redeem us, they said. They said this to Jesus himself. Jesus then explained the teachings of Moses and the messages of the prophets to those two disciples. Throughout this entire time, they still didn't make the connection that the Redeemer, their Redeemer, the one they were looking for, was walking right there with them. That story gets even more interesting, though. Jesus departed, that means he vanished, after the eyes of those two disciples were opened to see who he really was. Luke 24, 32. The two of them immediately returned to Jerusalem. They located the disciples, which which infers that these two must have been insiders. As the uh, 11, the remaining, they were hiding out at that time for fear of their lives. They exclaimed to those 11 that Jesus was alive. They detailed how they recognized him only after he broke the bread with them, just as he did the Passover meal the night before his betrayal, according to Luke 24.35 and 22.19. As they spoke, Right then, while that conversation's happening, Jesus appears to all of them again. The two from Emmaus, Mary Magdalene and the women, those 11, and anyone else who is with them. Yet even then, at that moment, those disciples didn't recognize him. They were afraid and presumed he was a ghost, despite having just heard that previous story. Now, lest you think that that somehow resolved the issue, the disciples missed it a second time. A few days later, seven of them went to fish, apparently catching nothing all night. This is in John 21, 1 and following. At some point early in the morning, a man called to them from shore. He he shouted, do you have any fish? They confirmed that they didn't, so the stranger told them to toss the nets on the other side of the boat. They obliged and caught so many fish that they couldn't haul the net into the boat. Now, at that point, John recognized the man is Jesus. Okay, now that's odd, just kind of as a footnote, because in Luke 5, 5, at the calling of Peter, we saw another episode in which some of the disciples were working all night, which night would be typically when you would catch the fish, but they'd been doing this without catching any even then, and in that instance, they caught so many when he first called them that they could hardly contain the load. So perhaps John sees the parallel and makes that connection right there from that similar miracle, okay? So uh, apparently, here's what happened. They'd been close enough 
to hear Jesus' instructions from the shore. He's, he's the stranger, but it took him performing a similar miracle to the one they had experienced when he first called them to help clue them in. Now, I want you to see what happened here. And here's just my best guess, is that Jesus looked different before carrying the weight of sin. He looked different while carrying our guilt and shame. I mean, Isaiah says that he was unrecognizable, like he didn't even look human. And then he looked different after being freed from it. Here's why I think that's important. Because once the wounds of sin are dealt with, once you encounter redemption... Your identity isn't only restored to you. You actually find yourself in a better place than you ever were before. Okay, let let me kind of say that one more time. Once you encounter redemption, once you are post-resurrection, your identity is not only restored to what it was before, before dealing with the weight of guilt, sin, shame, the stains of just hard life, but you find yourself better than you ever were. Now, in the previous talk, I talked about in being included in Christ. And since we are included in all of Christ, okay, like we discussed in the previous talk, it makes sense that we've also been included in this resurrection also. Okay, that, that means this. Our lives before awakening to our resurrection, they will look different than our lives after awakening to our resurrection. And although we often relegate that simply to moral behavior, meaning something like, uh, we sinned a lot before our profession of faith, so we don't sin much afterwards because now Jesus is Lord. You've got to remember this. Jesus knew no sin before his resurrection. Yet even at that, no one recognized him. In other words, the change had less to do with sin and more to do with the supernatural of the resurrection and the overflow of the power of God working through him than anything else. Now, we're also included in his ascension. Okay, so I would maybe add this. We shouldn't just understand the ascension as a geographic move by Jesus from earth to heaven. Rather than a simple change of location, the ascension is a qualitative change. It's a transition that makes new things possible. It opens new possibilities that were once merely impossibilities. Okay, so death, old life is gone, resurrection, new life, ascension, raised to a new quality, even higher quality. So, for instance, when you look at the New Testament, the ascension, it makes it possible for Jesus to baptize his church in the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts 2.33. The ascension makes it possible for us to now have supernatural spiritual gifts. That's something I'll talk about in several weeks. That's in Ephesians 4.8. The ascension, it makes it possible for us to experience intimate communion with the Father now because here's what the Bible says, is we're not just walking on earth, we're walking on earth and simultaneously we're seated in the heavens with Christ. That's Ephesians 1.20 and Ephesians 2.6. The ascension, one more, it also makes it possible for us to live the presence of the kingdom in a unique way now, a more powerful way than even the disciples experienced while walking with Jesus in the flesh. If you look at John 16, 7, Jesus details that. Now, I want to build on that last idea that we can live now the presence of the kingdom in such a way that other people, even the disciples who were walking and talking with Jesus, even ways that they couldn't do, because it would seem like at first glance that what they had would be a better deal. They were there in the flesh with Jesus. It would seem like that wouldn't be something that, uh, for lack of a better term, could be topped. You know, after all, Peter, he's the very man I referenced when 
uh, I was discussing our identity and how Jesus reveals who we really are. I think that was uh, two talks ago. That was uh, talk number two of this series. Peter's the one that writes that the prophets and writers of old were all aware that they weren't merely serving themselves. They were experiencing something, something powerful in the moment, but it would not reach its fullness until it reached us. And you can read that in 1 Peter 1.12. Okay, so here's, here's where maybe all this heads. To move forward, we've got to dig again. And, and I want to dig into two terms that we find in the New Testament. You've probably never heard a sermon on them. Two terms that had everything to do now with what we can experience. Okay, so buried in the New Testament, you find an interesting title that's given to Jesus. And again, there's two. They're so closely related that they're virtually inseparable. And again, as important as these are, my guess is you've probably not heard a sermon on either one. Here they are. Number one, the last Adam. Number two, the second man. Okay, let me repeat them because, again, you've probably not heard them. Number one is the last Adam. Number two is the second man. Those are really confusing terms. So let me take a closer look. Let me show you in the Bible where you see them, and then we'll break them apart. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 47. Let me, let me read it. Thus it's written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, an individual personality. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit, restoring the dead to life. But it is not the spiritual life which came first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from out of the earth, made of dust, earthly-minded. The second man is the Lord out of heaven. Now, that's Paul writing, so let me break down what he says here. A couple things. First, Adam was the first man. Now, everyone everywhere on the planet knows that. Uh, he's the first guy that ever walked on this earth. There's no argument about him being the first man, so let's move to point number two. Point number two is this. Jesus was the last Adam. Now, in the show notes, if you look on those, uh, I just made it bold in the passage, so you can go there and you can see these highlights. Uh, here's what I want you to see from this. Paul is telling us that Jesus ended something that Adam began. Hey, most people believe that we all descended from Adam. The truth is that we did, and then simultaneously, Paul's also arguing that even though we did, we didn't. Okay, somewhere in the great scheme of all of this, you know, you and I can theoretically trace our lineage back to Adam. Given enough time and enough help from Ancestry.com or from any other intensive archaeological resource or some kind of work, we can all map our family trees all the way they root right back to him physically. Okay, physically. But Paul tells us there's another kind of life. It's a spiritual one. The physical one came first, and then the spiritual one emerged. Okay, so if you look at, back in the show notes, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 46, he says that the physical was first, spiritual lineage second. Jesus has given us a new spiritual DNA. Now, as you might suspect, he's done this because we're included in him. We're included in everything that's his, just like we discussed in that previous talk. Well, what does that mean for you and I today? I would say, let me term it like this, theologians, that, that's guys and gals with a lot of advanced degrees who sit around and study the Bible for a living. They talk about this concept they refer to as original sin. 
They write about the fallenness of mankind. They pen huge books about how, just how bad people are and how there's little hope for them. Now, not all you know, Bible scholars do that, but no doubt you've probably heard this line of reasoning enough to know that um, this is true, that I'm on to something here. Here's the deal, though. Jesus didn't have a sin nature. Jesus didn't have that propensity to do wrong that the Bible thumpers so often say is inherent inside of mankind as the last Adam. Okay, so the last Adam, the last Adam, the one in that long line, Jesus walked this planet as the final man born in that fallen spiritual line. Okay, that's what it means that he's the last Adam. He's the final one that has that thing that Adam had. Here's the third observation. Third observation is we see that at the same time that Jesus lived as the last Adam, he began something new. He became the second man. Okay, let, me, let me give you the three points before I describe this one. First point was this. Adam was the first man. Second, Jesus was the last Adam. Third, at the same time that Jesus lived as that last Adam, he began something new. He became the second man. Here's what it means. Jesus literally launched a new race of humanity, one that was unchained to sin, yet bound to freedom. So yeah, you're physically related to Adam. Physically, you're related. You have his physical nature. You didn't descend from an ape or an amoeba. You descended from Adam. Spiritually, though, you stand in the line of Jesus. You have his spiritual nature. The us that was born in the image of Adam, uh, the part of us that was in Adam, it was crucified, as we discussed in the previous talk. It died. It was buried. When we arose on the resurrection, we arose remade in the image of Christ. Okay, we're included in everything that is Christ. The first Adam started a tidal wave of sin, but the last Adam stopped sin dead in its tracks, stripping sin of its power. There's this passage. Uh, Romans 5 has some of Paul's most lengthy teaching of this. Let me read you. This is from the Amplified Version of the Bible. Just a few verses here. Uh, I'm going to read you verses 12, 15, and 19, Romans 5. Here it is. Sin came into the world through one man, and death, as a result of that sin, death spread to all men. No one being able to stop it or to escape its power because all men sinned. But God's free gift is not at all to be compared to the trespass. His grace is out of all proportion to the fall of man. For if many died through one man's falling away, his lapse, his offense, much more profusely did God's grace and the free gift that comes through the undeserved favor of the one man Jesus Christ abound and overflow and for the benefit of many. For just as by one man's disobedience, failing to hear, heedlessness, and carelessness, the many were constituted sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be constituted righteous, that is, made acceptable to God, brought into right standing with him. Now, if you look in the show notes, I've created a chart that helps you see how this works. On the left side, I'm just going to kind of work through the chart right here, so you can just uh, maybe go to the show notes on my website and just scroll right through that. On the left side, uh, it says the last Adam. The title of the chart is Jesus ends the old, Jesus begins the new. 
the last Adam means that Jesus ends the old race. As the second man, he begins a new race. As the last Adam, he dies at the cross, never to live again. Okay, Sin doesn't have resurrection power, but as the second man, he resurrects from the tomb, never to die again. As the last Adam, we died with Jesus, uh, according to Romans 6.6. 6, as the second man, we arose with Jesus, uh, according to Galatians 2.20. As the last Adam, this is the final observation, we died. We're cleansed of our old sins. The payment of, of sins has been made. As the second man, we arise with his resurrection power. The life of the Spirit is now available to us. Now, here's a great verse that starts to maybe give us the difference between the old and the new in a way that's profound. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, it tells us this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, if you grew up in church like I did, you probably read that verse a few dozen times. It's very common. So here's what I want to do. I want to slow down. I want to rewind it. And then I want to clarify what it means to be new in the way the Bible says that we're new. This one's going to blow your mind, by the way. Often when we think of something that's new, you and I just envision a better and cleaner, tidier version of the old. Um, before I go there, let me, let's just make an honest observation. Being new like that, cleaner, tidier version, okay, clean slate, sins forgiven, that would be a great gospel. The idea that we get to start over, that the things we've done uh, that are wrong, that we get a pass on them, that it's as if those bad deeds that we did and the good deeds that went undone never existed. But the gospel is better than that, way better. In fact, the word gospel, it literally means too good to be true, but still true news. So let me, let me look at the verse again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he, she, is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, the word Paul uses when he penned this verse of Scripture, it doesn't mean new in the sense that we often use the word. This new means completely different. There are two Greek words that are in the New Testament that are used for the word new. Uh, one word is neos. The other word is kainos. Neos is how we most often use the word new. Neos, it means new with respect to time. Uh, it is new of the same kind and quality as the original. Uh, let, me, let me give you two examples. Example number one, with young kids in my house, uh, I bump into this one just about every single month. So one kid comes in and says, hey, my favorite pair of shoes wore out, so I need to go to the store. I need to get a Neos pair. In fact, two weeks ago, Levi needed a Neos pair of Vans running shoes, bright red. Okay, now my kids, Levi included, don't speak Greek like Jesus and Paul, but you get the idea. When they say they need a new pair of shoes, you know exactly what they're asking for. They want a replacement uh, for the scuffed up, gouged out, too small, whatever pair of shoes that they had. Okay, and, and again, in my house, it happens more from wear and tear than from outgrowing the shoes. Here's another example, example number two. This one happens with the six-year-old. Uh, I was crawling in the backyard or I was climbing a tree in my brand new school clothes. I got a tear in them, so I need a new, I need a Neos pair that's not shredded. I need a Neos pair of jeans. 
Okay, again, <laughs> my kids don't speak in compound sentences. They don't drop Greek words into their statements. I, I usually have to pry the request for new jeans that they tore up out of them, lest they get scolded for ripping, shredding, or tearing yet another. I mean, just fill in the blank of whatever the latest garment was to be destroyed, but you get the idea. When we replace an article with clothing, we generally purchase something that closely approximates what we originally had. Something identical to the old, except they are neos. Okay, just getting cleaned up though, that's not the gospel. Jesus doesn't just cleanse us, rather, he includes us, okay? He includes us in everything that he's experienced. Refer back to the last talk. The old dies, something totally different and unrecognizable. Okay, just going back to the first part of this talk, something that even his friends didn't see in him, something unrecognizable emerges. So Paul uses a second word for new when he writes that the old has passed away, all things are new. He uses the word kanos. Okay, that's a word that means, this is just kind of a quotation from the dictionary, uh, new as to former quality is a different value from what is contrasted to the old. Okay, new is to former quality is of a different value or different nature from what is contrasted as old. Okay, the kanos kind of new, it's superior. Okay, it's superior to the previous product. It's different. It's of a better quality. You might think of the example kind of like this. Uh, if my old shoes wear out and I decide to get a new pair, that's Neos. I replace the old pair with a new pair, a pair that is clean, unworn, has more life in them. If my shoes wear out and I decide to quit using shoes altogether, but then go buy a jetpack as my means of personal transformation, um, I've then made a Kano's decision. I, I, I purchased something that is far superior and completely unlike the old. Now, that example, yeah, it's a bit far-fetched, but that's the point. The Bible does not say that we are neos, meaning like you have a clean slate, as really as profound and great of a message that would be. The Bible goes farther and says that we are kanos. So here's what Paul said. If anyone is in Christ, the old is gone, the kanos has come. The not a new pair of shoes, the jetpack has come. So read yourself into that verse, like kanos is defined, as completely different, as superior, as totally unlike, unrecognizable to the previous. Okay, you, you recognize a neos pair of shoes as compared to the old ones, right? Uh, one of the kids comes strolling in from the mall after I've taken them and has on a Neos pair of shoes. All the others are instantly like, oh, what? Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like they, they see it. But you don't recognize a Kanos person when they've been resurrected. Even if they never sinned before the resurrection like Jesus. Even if you knew them intimately just a few days earlier, okay? In fact, you know, we often, I, I think in Christian circles, we second guess and insist on visible proof. First, that what the Bible insists is true, placing a burden on people, which the scripture never does, because we can't believe that that radical, that that different, that that exclamatory of a change could happen. All right. Now, um, you've been following along. Uh, in the show notes, I've been putting these graphics that uh, I've been developing for the Life Lift book for the material. 
And so what I want to do is, uh, if you're following, you know I've been just adding to it. Like I keep putting another concept on it. and Hey, let's add this too. So let me bring back the graphic. It's in the show notes that I had from the first talk. Uh, and I'm going to add to it. The Bible tells us that the fullness of God occupied Jesus. Uh, Colossians 2.9 For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. All right, we, we'd expect that because... Uh, as we learned in that first talk, Jesus reveals exactly what the Father is like. Um, Paul, the one who writes this, he continues that same sentence, okay? The, and he says this. Th- this is what I want you to see, Colossians 2.10. He says, and you have been filled with him. So put this together. In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him. So on that graphic, just look at it like the fullness of God is in Jesus, but the fullness of Jesus is now in you. And Paul says this in the New Testament, not not once, but multiple times. And he reminds us that this fullness of Christ, it actually fills us. In fact, a few sentences just before that in Colossians 1.27, he says that this was a mystery that had been hidden throughout the ages of history, something that no one expected. Like, the prophets didn't expect it. The, even the disciples didn't expect it. Yet now you and I get to enjoy this reality. Um, in the show notes back there, there's this chart again that I put there. Um, if the fullness of Jesus is in me and is in you, here's what it means. The old man. That's the man, the woman that's in the line of Adam. Sin is in my nature. But my new identity, holiness, is my nature. The old, I live under the law. The new, I live under grace. Uh, The old, I'm left to my own fallen nature and I'm judged according to my works. The new, I have a new nature, not a fallen nature, a new nature. Jesus was judged for me and he completed my works of obedience. The old, no amount of good deeds can transform me into a new man. But the new, no amount of bad deeds can revert me to the old man. Doesn't mean I stumble, but my nature is completely changed. The old man. I achieve my own goodness through the works of the flesh. The new man, I receive goodness. I receive it. I don't achieve it. I receive it because it is manifest in my life in the fruit of the Spirit. Under the old man, I have to strive against my nature in order to do good. That's in Ephesians 2.3. But in the new man, with the new line that you're in with Jesus, you have to strive against your nature in order to do wrong, in order to sin, because your nature is holiness. That's also in Ephesians 2.3-5. The old man, anything unclean, like a leper, uh, if it touches something clean, it makes the clean contaminated, whether it's a person or an offering. I mean, you read this all throughout the Old Testament. But the new identity is this. Anything that's unclean, it's actually made clean by touching something that's clean. So Jesus touches a leper. He doesn't become unclean. He makes the leper clean. Uh, even like 1 Corinthians seven thirteen says that an unbelieving spouse is sanctified by a believing spouse. Like somehow the transfer of cleanness and holiness, it just permeates and works the other way because there's a new nature. Uh, the old man, I do things so I will have favor with God. The new man, I do things freely because, get this, I already have favor with God. Uh, the old man, this is the last one, I feel condemned. I see bad calamity that comes my way as a result of something that is deserved, as something that is merited because of my actions. 
the new man, though, I speak life to the dead things. That's in Ezekiel 37. I speak life to dead things. I tell them who they are and what the Lord has called them to do. I impart the life of Christ everywhere I go. It's, it's an incredible juxtaposition. And when you look at those, you see why and how that, again, virtually everything from before is unrecognizable to everything that's after post-resurrection. Maybe this final analogy as we close out will help. Um, for virtually every day one summer, I wore a day camp shirt uh, when I was a kid, it, it was from a church camp. It was yellow, it had green words on it, and a green outline of a butterfly on it. The shirt displayed that Second Corinthians verse that we just discussed. It was written in small font on the front, uh, and then the words new creation were highlighted to stand out, like somehow signifying something about the butterfly. Now, that leads me to this. Think, think about where butterflies come from, because that illustrates the point perfectly. Here's how it happens. A weird caterpillar makes its way to a branch, goes off the edge, creates a cocoon, and hibernates. In time, although it seems that nothing has happened, and I remember when I was young, seeing cocoons, it it seems like I saw them all over the place because I would would be outside all the time for hours. In time, though nothing has happened, that insect, and sometimes we would see this, we would see like the insect actually struggling and pushing its way through that hiding place. And then a different creature, completely different, emerges. It's better, and it's qualitatively different, such that there's no recognition between what existed before and what exists now after. In fact, the discrepancy between the old and the new is so radically different that no part of the first would make you possibly think that it could become the second. One of the guys... It was in a 12-step group that I attended last year. He told me this. He said, somewhere I read that a caterpillar doesn't just go into a cocoon and grow wings. Instead, everything about the caterpillar dissolves into nothing. It goes away. It's just goo that's left. Then miraculously, once it's nothing, the Lord starts rebuilding it into the butterfly. It's almost like the caterpillar has to lose its life or what it thought was its life in order to find it. Now that reminds me of Jesus' words from Matthew 10, 39. I mean, and he says the same thing. I just kind of put this in the notes here um, that I'm looking at. Matthew 16, 25, Mark 8, 35, Luke 9, 24. I mean, this is a repeated theme throughout the New Testament. That is the gospel. That is is life. That when you get to the brokenness, when you get to the bottom, when you get to the death where so many of us experience in life just the reality that life is good, but life is hard. This is the life that you've been given. A totally new life, a resurrected life, an unrecognizable life, which is void of any semblance from the past. It emerges. You see, you've exchanged the old life for the new life of Christ. Not not, not the Neos, but the Kanos. We haven't just traded the current version of ourselves for a cleaner version. Okay, We've traded for something that's radically, qualitatively, exponentially, infinitely, unrecognizably superior. Here's my prayer for you as I sign off. May the Lord bless you 
May the Lord keep you. May the Lord be gracious and shine his face of favor on you, especially as you struggle in the dark place, especially as you struggle just like that caterpillar in the place that's hidden, that's tight, that's remote, where you feel bound. And may you see, sense, and feel the beauty remaking you from the inside out because you're no longer in the line of Adam, the last Adam who became the second man has reoriented everything about you. And now what's right, what's true, what's pure, what's holy, what's gracious, what's kind, what's dignified, what's of good report actually comes naturally because that is who you are. May you spread your wings and may you soar grace, peace, shalom.